Prokopovich at East Carolina University with Civil War Talk Radio. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln was born in a cabin in Kentucky built 30 years after his death? Did you know that Helena, Montana is proud of its Confederate veterans, even though nobody from the state actually fought in the Civil War? Or for that matter, did you know that the airplane, like everything else important, was actually invented in Texas? Our guest today knows all this and more. James W. Lowen has traveled across the United States visiting Civil War and other historic sites and has published his findings in a book called Lies Across America, What Our Historic Sites Get Wrong. Join us on Civil War Talk Radio when we return with James Lowen. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University. Today our guest is James Lowen, author of Lies Across America and other books dealing with the, I will say, sorry state of history education in the United States. Mr. Lowen, good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? You certainly are. Good. Uh, on occasion, people have actually mispronounced my last name. Yeah. As hard as that may be to believe. So I try to do my best to get that right. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, what, what, where, where, uh, where did you go to school? What have you done? Well, I grew up in Decatur, Illinois. Um, which is, incidentally, a, a town with a considerable number of, of Civil War monuments and stuff like that. Uh, and, of course, we have a Lincoln heritage in that area, too. Uh, it's right in the middle of Illinois. Uh, then I went off to school at Carleton College in Minnesota. So I became a junior in college, and I realized that my friends who were, say, in French were spending their junior year in France, uh, and I was a sociology major, and I had never been outside of the Midwest, at least other than family vacations, you know. And I thought, that's not competent. 
so I spent my junior year abroad in Mississippi, as I put it. Um, not the whole year, actually, just the winter semester. Um, and in 1963, when I did this, Mississippi was the closest thing the United States had to a foreign country. This was right after uh, James Meredith had entered Old Miss, uh, which occasioned the Old Miss riot and uh, the occupation of that uh, institution by several thousand United States troops eventually. So I went to Mississippi State University, which was then the largest all-white uh, segregated school of higher education outside of South Africa. And some people were proud of that, and others were not. And it was very, very interesting. And during that time, I went around to, to various colleges and uh, other places, to, to the Mississippi Delta and over to Tuskegee Institute and so on. It was my See the South campaign. And it really uh, caused me to develop quite an interest in, in race relations, which remains to this day. Then I went off to Harvard University for graduate school. I think I got in partly because I had done something special, namely what I just told you. Um, and my first teaching job after I finished my Ph.D., well, my Ph.D. came out of that experience. Uh, I wrote a book about, uh, it's still in print, called The Mississippi Chinese Between Black and White. Because while I was at Mississippi State, I came to learn that although Mississippi State claimed to be all white, it did have a number of Chinese Americans as students. Uh, they didn't um, break the taboo, but they had broken it earlier. That is to say, uh, in the Delta, in the Mississippi Delta, there had been, uh, well, Chinese Americans had been excluded from white public schools and had not wanted to go to black public schools because of the stigma that, that those schools um, put on you. And so two, two different school districts had had three-way segregated schools with white schools, black schools, and Chinese schools. So that's what I wrote my Ph.D. dissertation about because that was almost an unknown fact, and it tested a whole lot of theories about segregation. And it's, it's a, an interesting book. I just want to break in. I think that, that's a fascinating story. I've learned since moving to North Carolina that the Native American population in North Carolina experienced the same phenomenon. Their students were excluded. In fact, I spent one day over at the Choctaw Indian Reservation in East Mississippi for the same reason, because they're testing this, you know, this same phenomenon. Uh, you're absolutely right. And well, then they, they end up with their own schools. Uh, yes. So you have three a, a three way segregation. That's right. And of course, in, in, the, in the case of the Choctaws, they're BIA schools, Bureau of Indian Affairs. That's right. Um, so. Uh, in, I, I did find, incidentally, that between 1952 and 1960, not too long before I, I was a student there in 63 at Mississippi State, so not too long before, the Chinese had been admitted to the white public schools in every town in the Delta. Um, and in fact, shortly after I was there, when, when, well, in 1969-70, um, the schools really desegregated across the Deep South. Um, that was the decision called Alexander versus Holmes. And um, as a result, you got white pullout from the public schools in several Delta counties. And uh, in Greenville, the largest single town in the Delta, um, a Chinese woman, Chinese-American woman, became the uh, principal of the all-white elementary school. And, I, and the most recent thing I heard is she's the principal of the whole darn thing now, the whole uh, academy it's called. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Again, then they've become honorary whites, and they are in the white segregated schools that were formed to avoid the integrated uh, public schools. Fascinating. So anyway, 
after I got out of, of Harvard... And, and I have to interrupt you. The relentless sure. self-promotion clause of my contract requires me to remind listeners I went to Harvard, too. Oh, there you uh, go. Having done that, we can go on. Okay. Um, well, I had a good time. Anyway, <laughs> um, after I got out, I um, uh, really solicited a job from Tougaloo College, a college in Mississippi, a black college, that I had met up with way back in 63 when I had been an undergraduate because it was an interesting place. It, it was kind of like Carleton in that it was an intellectual and uh, small liberal arts college. Um, I, students actually read books there, books that weren't even assigned in class. Shocking. Um, this didn't happen at Mississippi State and didn't, doesn't happen at a lot of schools today. Um, and so I really liked the place, and I did get a job there, and I went and I taught there from 1968 through 1975. And that is the origin, really, of my book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, and it, it really came about from an experience I had my first year teaching there, at least my first full year teaching there, 68, 69. Now, this is your book about high school textbooks, is that yes. right? I, let's hold off on that and talk about that in the next segment, because I think that's a fascinating book, and one our listeners will definitely want to pick up, um, but I'm, I'm going to, if, if we can skip ahead chronologically, uh, you worked on that for a while. But at some point, you got to historic sites. Yes. Well, that also came out of Mississippi, really. Um, the state uh, of Mississippi has a reasonable number of historical uh, markers. And at the very end, the last picture in Lies My Teacher Told Me is a picture of such a marker in Mississippi. Now, this is a marker about the Civil War. Uh, in fact, it is in southwest Mississippi, Mississippi. Um, Probably your, your readers who are civil rights buffs will remember, but the rest of us won't remember, that uh, Grant tried and tried and tried to take Vicksburg. Uh, Vicksburg was uh, often called the, the Confederate Gibraltar. Uh, it's up on high hills overlooking the uh, Mississippi River, and, of course, it commanded the river uh, in terms of its cannons, and so uh, it kept the, the uh, United States from fully using the river to ship everything from the Midwest down to the, to the ocean at, at New Orleans and, and get it into, into uh, world commerce. And so it was very important to the Confederacy. It was also important because it connected the western part of the Confederacy, Texas and Arkansas and so on, with the eastern part and kept it from being cut in half. So it was quite well defended. So uh, Grant tried and tried to, to take it. He tried various approaches from the north and, the, and so on. And finally what he did was he floated his ships down past the batteries at night and lost only one of them. He marched the folks uh, on the opposite shore, the Louisiana side, down past uh, Vicksburg so that they were now south of Vicksburg. And then he crossed, oh, I don't have my map in front of me, but maybe 30 miles south of, of Vicksburg. He crossed the river uh, where there was no Confederate force at the moment to um, stop him. Mm-hmm. He then goes on this incredible overland route. I, I, it's said to be the first time this has ever been done. Uh, I'm sure it was actually done by Attila the Hun and some of those folks back a long time ago. But he, he goes on this route uh, that takes his forces northeast from Bruinsburg, Mississippi, where he, where he crossed, through uh, the little town of Rodney and the little, uh, a couple other towns, Utica and so on, on its way to Jackson, uh, the state capital. And he has no supply lines. Um, usually the Army went so slowly actually building supply lines, sometimes they'd even lay, lay railroad tracks behind them uh, to supply the Army. Well, he abandoned supply lines. Now, how could he do this? I think he could do this because 
he knew that the black infrastructure would support him. This part of Mississippi was then and is now 80% black. And, of course, many of the white folks were, were uh, drafted or, or enlisted in the Confederate Army and weren't there anyway. And so it was overwhelmingly black. And as his army went towards uh, Jackson, they got intelligence on where the Confederates were. They got intelligence on what was the best route to, to take. Uh, they got food and water. Uh, they got joined by all kinds of folks who, of course, uh, were so excited because this was the moment that they became free people. And so when they get to Jackson, uh, they're being shelled by, the, uh, by Pemberton's army, they think, and an old black man runs out from the side and says, don't worry, the, the main corps of the army has retreated north to Canton. They left their, their artillery here to shell you, and uh, if you'll follow me, you can come in from the side and capture them. And so they did, and they captured them. Uh, and that was the Battle of Jackson. didn't last very long at all. Then they moved west, Champions Hill and, and Clinton and so on, and finally they invested Vicksburg. They surrounded it from the east, um, pretty much surprising Vicksburg. They, weren't, uh, they, they had known they were coming, but they, they were surprised by the entire maneuvers. And then they besieged it, and eventually on July 4, 1863, they took it. Well, in southwest Mississippi, where Grant's army first came, uh, there was a historical marker, and it said something like this, uh, Union Army passes Rocky Springs, and of course it's at Rocky Springs uh, on the Natchez Trace in southwest Mississippi. Then it says, here the residents gathered to watch in stony, stony silence as the General McClellan's bluecoats marched northeast towards Jackson. Yeah, I've, I've got your book open now to page 314. I'm looking at that marker. You have a photograph of it. Yeah, did pretty well by memory, didn't I? You got it. <laughs> the the troops. What does it say here? They the Union troops encountered no resistance beyond the icy stares of the people yeah. gathered at the icy side of the stairs. road I to watch. I didn't do so well. Yeah. Great, great phrase. So this portrays it as no, uh, not the, the locals are completely hostile. Yes. It's an outrage because, as I say, at least 80% of, of the stares they got were totally happy stares from, from black folks. And it turns out even some of the white folks in southwest Mississippi were delighted uh, that the United States was, was taking control of the state again. So, so there's, there's just the, an outrage. Uh, that marker leaves you stupider than if you had not read it. <laughs> and so I attack it at the end of lies. My teacher told me, well, I didn't realize it then, but that was – that, that uh, issue, if you will, was going to grow into my next book, and that's, of course, what you were mentioning, Lies Across America. In Lies Across America, I pick on at least one historic site in every state. I think I picked on eight of them in Virginia. I don't know if that's because Virginia has more history or just gets it more wrong. Uh, I pick on maybe four or five in Texas and, and uh, I think four in California, uh, but just one in some states, and, um, and show that what we're saying uh, on the landscape, again, often or in museums or at forts or ships or whatever, often makes us stupider than if we had never gone there. And that's just a terrible thing. I mean, that's not why we go there. We go there to learn history. With, what uh, examples come to mind? Uh, do you recall any particularly egregious ones dealing with the Civil War? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I, I, actually, from, from beginning to end, um, at, at the well, it's not exactly the beginning, but there's the issue of, of what caused the Civil War. And at um, uh, Gettysburg, we find that, that uh, South Carolina weighs in on this subject. In fact, South Carolina says stuff about what caused the Civil War uh, in several places. And what it was was states' rights. Well, it turns out that states' rights was not 
why the Confederacy seceded. And we know why the Confederacy seceded, because they told us so. Uh, if you go to the web, you can actually download uh, what's often called South Carolina's Declaration of Independence or uh, the Ordinance of Secession that it passed to secede. And what does this document say? Well, it, I've, read it, I've read it and examined it at length, and I discuss it in my entry on Gettysburg, because at Gettysburg, South Carolina simply lies about the matter. Um, why South Carolina seceded? They were against states' rights, and they tell us at some length which states' rights they are against and why they're against them. Uh, and we have to remember that the key issue in terms of states' rights in the 1850s was the issue of fugitive slaves. And the United States national government uh, had passed a rather draconian Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, and it prevented states' rights. In fact, it required that states participate in capturing slaves even if they didn't have anything to do with slavery. Um, well, South Carolina is outraged at certain northern states' fairly mild efforts to interfere with the operation of this law. I mean, for instance, Pennsylvania passed a law called the Individual Liberty Laws. Uh, this law that provided says, okay, well, we understand that in the provisions of the 1850 uh, Fugitive Slave Act, our policemen, our gendarmes, our sheriffs, and so on, are required to help um, uh, capture any alleged slave. Doesn't even you, you really don't have to prove that it's a slave, especially because the slave can't testify against you. Only you can testify against him or her. Um, so we're, we're supposed to, uh, our, our folks are supposed to help capture them. But we're in charge of paying our uh, gendarmes and our police and so on. And so this act provides that Pennsylvania will not pay any sheriff or policeman or other law official for the time he spends in this kind of pursuit. And that alone was enough to certainly upset South Carolina. Oh, absolutely. South Carolina's outraged. South Carolina's also outraged at New Hampshire because I've, New I've, Hampshire lets blacks vote. James, I'm going to interrupt you just for a moment because the music tells us it's time to take a break yeah. here on Civil War Talk Radio. But we'll be back in just a moment with James Lowen to talk more about some of the truly bizarre and outrageous things you can read at historic sites across America. We'll hear that in a moment on Civil War Talk Radio.